Thank you for listening to this sermon from Renaissance Church located in Montreal, Quebec. For more information about Renaissance Church, please visit our website, renaissancemtl.com. If you would like to know more about how you can partner up to see the gospel advance in Montreal, please send us an email at renaissance.mtl at gmail.com. Again, good morning. Thank you guys. So great to be together. Um, I know, I think everyone, but if you don't know me, my name is James. I'm the pastor here and just excited to, um, to bring God's word this morning. And as I've prepared and studied, I'm just excited about this this morning. So we're continuing. This is week two of our series called Stand. And it's a study in the Old Testament book of Daniel. So if you've got a Bible, you can go there. There's Bibles here in the back of the, the row. Um, it's okay if you don't know how to get to Daniel. Use the table of contents. That's why it's there. Um, but Daniel's about... A little, a little past the midway point of the Bible, and it's kind of contained in a section of, of Scripture that some of its prophecy and some of its story and different things that are happening in the Old Testament. And the Old Testament's valuable. The Old Testament points us to a God who is great and holy, and it also points us to our need for a Savior and to the coming Savior. So you can get a Bible and turn there. Things will be on the screen as well. And as we go through this whole series for the next handful of weeks, we're going to see that Daniel, um, he's the guy, the main character here, the Daniel's foundation of faith in God enabled him to stand firm while living in a culture that did not worship or honor God. So Daniel was living in exile. What that meant was that he had been taken from his home, not by choice. Someone came and like captured them and enslaved them and took them. He was taken from everything he knew and loved, and he was now living in a foreign place among a people who did not love and worship God. It's like taking someone from a small, quiet town and then just like moving them and dropping them into like Times Square or like Las Vegas or something and being like, all right, now you have this new life and you must learn to... How do you follow God in a setting that's not at all what you're used to? That's what happened to Daniel, and it was a major, major shift in his life. And as we go through this series, what I hope we see is that there's a lot of parallels with the book of Daniel and for us today. So Dylan preached last week, did an incredible job, um, by the way, but he talked about this, that followers of Jesus, Christians, are exiles. What do we mean by that? It means that this world we live in is not our real and permanent home. That we're just kind of like, just journeying here. If if there's language and kind of old school language and songs and all those things. But like this is is a temporary place. It's not our real home. Our real home is eternal. Our real home is the kingdom of God. Our citizenship is not here. Our citizenship is in heaven for anyone who has put their faith in Jesus. But for now, we all live here. I think most of us do anyways. You know, sometimes... You wonder where people are living. I'm joking there. But for now, we live here, right? So the question then is, how do we stand firm in our faith? How do we live as exiles in a broken world? This even makes sense in this city that we live in, right? How many people would say, hey, Montreal is a city that is filled with people who love and follow Jesus? Probably not many people would say that. God is at work in this city. God's doing incredible things, and God is moving all over the place. But when we just look at the city, it is a place that is in desperate need of the hope of Jesus. And so as we go through the series, my hope is that we would see that following Jesus does not mean that we, like, close ourselves off from the big bad world, right? Or it also doesn't mean that we just say, oh, let's just live like everybody else. It doesn't matter. 
Jesus is something that we love and we kind of go to church on Sundays, but the rest of the time doesn't really matter. We don't want that either. But there's a third way that we would live to follow and honor God in the middle of the culture that we live in, that we would live for the good and the blessing of God in our city and in our neighborhoods. And so that's the, the main idea here of what this series is about. All right, so jumping into sermon today, dreams can be really weird. How many people would say, yes, I've had a weird dream? I had one last night. I don't even remember what it was now, but I remember being like, what is happening, right? G dreams are weird. For about two months before Christmas, Lottie was like learning to talk, and we would ask Lottie when she woke up, she's two now, we'd say, Lottie, did you have any dreams? And she'd say, yes. We'd say, what did you, you dream about? And every single day, she'd say, Santa, right? She didn't really dream. She just like, for whatever reason, that's what she thought she would say, right? So like in life, we have good dreams, we have bad dreams, we have recurring dreams. Those are odd, weird dreams, and so on. Like, everybody knows, like, this is normal, right? Um, probably most of the time, they don't mean anything. Like, it means that we, like, ate food too late at night, or who knows what, you know, like, whatever. But dreams are weird, right? So in our scripture today, in Daniel, it features two different dreams. And in this scenario that we're going to read today, the dreams actually had a, a, a meaning. Like, there was a purpose to them that, that God was communicating something. And that, and that can happen in different times and different places, right? We don't have to get into that today. But God is communicating through these dreams. And so through these two dreams, what we're going to see is we'll see that how we can stand firm in a changing world and how it can matter in our everyday life to have a right view of the kingdom of God. Here's our main point of the sermon. This will be on the screen. We can stand firm in our faith when we understand that God's kingdom will outlast all human kingdoms. You're going to hear that multiple times this morning as we go through this. So before I just completely jump into our scripture, here's some context again. Remember, uh, D Dylan talked about this last week, but Daniel had been taken captive from Jerusalem to Babylon by a king named Nebuchadnezzar. The Israelite people were taken captive because for generations they had rebelled against God and ignored God and disobeyed God. And so because of that, they are being disciplined by God. They are being, God is allowing them to be taken captive and into exile for a period of 70 years. And what's happening is that when you look at the big picture, God is waking them up. He is shaking them to say, hey, you are called to worship me, and you're ignoring me, and you are giving people a bad picture of who I am. And so God is waking them up so that they will turn back to him. And so this exile is because of their own disobedience. And so in our chapters today, the dreams in the life of King Nebuchadnezzar and the interpretations of those dreams by Daniel show us that the kingdom of God will, will outlast all other kingdoms, and they show us the devastating result of human pride. All right? You with me? You awake? You good? Okay, so if you've got a Bible, we're going to go, we're going to, today we're looking at Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 4. And I'll tell you up front, it's a whole lot of material, and I'm not going to read every word of it. Um, some of the things I'm going to read are going to be here, and then some of it I'm going to tell the story. So here's my challenge for you. Like, I would always challenge you, don't just listen to one of us and just say, okay, they said it, so it must be true. Um, I hope you can trust us, but you also should go home, read this on your own, read through these chapters on your own, um, but for the sake of sermon time, I'm going to condense and tell this as a story as we go through it, all right? You with me? Um, we'll, we'll, and both chapters, the reason we're doing them together is there's a lot of like parallel between them, right? Both chapters have a dream as a central part of the narrative, both chapters highlight the enduring nature of the kingdom of God, and both chapters deal with pride and humility. So. 
track with me here if you can. We're going to start in Daniel chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And it says this. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had, had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. All right, what's happening? The king has bad dreams. He doesn't know what's going on. And he calls for, he says, hey, I need people to come interpret these dreams. I need people to come and tell me what this means. So we look at kind of verses 3 through 9 and summarize it. The king says, hey, I've had a dream that the Chaldeans, which was like this class of people that were like magicians or sorcerers kind of. Remember, this is a, a land that at the time was filled with a lot of idol worship and pagan worship. And they said, they said, okay, yeah, we'll here, tell us the dream and we will interpret it. Um, but the king says, nope, I'm not going to tell you the dream. You have to tell me what my dream was and then you have to interpret it. And if you don't, I will kill you. That's what this passage says. And so these guys are like, King, no one can do this. Like, we, and they're, they're, they're scared, they're terrified, they're like, how to, can we like read his mind to interpret this dream? And so the, he says, I'm going to kill you if you don't interpret it. And the king thinks that if he tells them the dream, then they're probably just going to make stuff up as an interpretation, right? Oh, king, we think it means this, you know, whatever. So he's like, I need to know that you really know what you're talking about, so I'm not even going to tell you the dream, right? And they're, they're afraid for their own lives. They're unable to interpret it, and they are afraid. If we jump to verse 10 in Daniel chapter 2, Here's what it says. It says, The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Now, these guys did not love and follow and worship the one true God, but they're kind of right here. They've got, they've got part of it right. They're like, nobody can answer this except the gods. What they could have said and could have understood was, no one can answer this except the one true God. The God who is over all things, the creator of all things. And so they come and they say, King, nobody can do this. This is not a, you're not just going to get one of us to be able to answer it. They give this response to the king. The king gets angry and he makes plans. Okay. You guys can't do it. I'm going to have all of you killed. And this included Daniel and his friends because Daniel was in this class of like um, part of the king's like entourage of like the, he wasn't like a magician, but he was part of this group. And so Daniel finds out like, hey, you're going to be killed because these guys couldn't interpret the dream. And so Daniel was at the time, he was considered a wise man of Babylon. So Daniel hears about this and basically says, okay, everybody calm down. Let me talk to the king. So the guy that was like the king's right-hand man, that was like carrying all this out, he's like, no, please wait. Let me talk to the king. We go to chapter, to verse 16. It says, And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Verse 17. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night, 
And Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. So Daniel, think about the courage here. Daniel says, everybody hold on, I can interpret this dream. At that moment, God had not revealed it to him. He is trusting and putting his life on the line to say, God, I'm asking you to do this. So Daniel gathers his friends and says, guys, we need to pray. We need to seek the mercy of God. And God responds and God reveals this to Daniel. And that whole last section there was Daniel just saying, God, you are above all gods. You give wisdom. You are the great and mighty God as God had revealed this dream. And so the next few verses kind of summarize that Daniel says, hey, don't kill everybody. Take me to the king. I can interpret the dream. And so Daniel's taken before the king and we come to verse 26 and it says this, the king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar. Okay, so side note, the king had given them all local names of the local language, so that's why he sometimes is Daniel, sometimes is Belteshazzar. Okay. Um, he says, are you, the king says, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. And so Daniel then goes on to explain the dream. Um, he says, to you, O king, as you lay in bed, come, came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what it is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have, more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. And so Daniel says, yes, I can do it. King, you've got this vision. It matters. It has the impact. It impacts the future. And Daniel says, I don't have the wisdom to do this. No one could do this, but God has revealed this to me. Continue on, and Daniel begins to describe the dream, which was part the first part of what had to happen. And so in the king's dream, the king had a dream, and in the dream there was this statue or image, and it had a head of gold. It had chest and arms of silver. It, its, its midsection and its thighs were made of bronze. Its legs were made of iron, and its feet were made partly of iron and partly clay. And in the dream, it says a stone that was not cut by human hands comes down and crushes the statue. Then it goes on in, in, in verse uh, 35 to say, that stone then becomes a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And Daniel says, here's the meaning of this dream. And we'll get to more of this in a minute. He says, Nebuchadnezzar, he says, you are the head of gold. You and your kingdom is the head of gold. He says, the other materials, the bronze and the iron and so forth, they represent other kingdoms that will come after you. But then he says, but the stone represents the kingdom of God. The stone that will come and destroy is a picture of God at work. So the king hears all this, 
And in verse 44, it says, And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. So he's describing, this is the point of the dream. Verse 46, Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and then it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. So the king has just been given a dream that, hey, your kingdom's going to be destroyed, and all these kingdoms are going to rise up after it, but there is a greater kingdom that's coming that will be stronger and mightier than all of these other kingdoms. And so at the end of this, it kind of wraps up where the king, he, he acknowledges that, hey, God reveals mysteries, and he's very pleased because obviously he knew something was happening because Daniel told him his dream correctly, like this, he had kept it a mystery, right? And he, he sees Daniel as wise, and he promotes Daniel because of his wisdom. Now, chapter 3, Graham is going to preach on that next week, um, and it all connects together, but we're going to jump over to chapter 4, because remember, we're in the dream sequence of our Daniel series, right? Um, so, Daniel chapter 4 starts off in verses 1 through 16, and how it starts is that the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, is acknowledging and worshiping God. Why? Because he has seen the power of God through Daniel and Daniel's friends. He has seen God doing things that he cannot explain. So chapter 4 actually starts with him saying, like, wow, God, how great are your signs and wonders. You are God above all gods. But then he has a second dream. and It says he's afraid. And he calls again for his interpreters. I don't know why he didn't call for Daniel first, right? But he didn't. He calls again. Hey, guys, magicians, sorcerers, interpreters, please come. I've had a dream. And they can't, this time he explains the dream to them, but he, they cannot explain the dream. And then Daniel hears about this, and Daniel says, I can explain the dream. In this second dream, the king has a dream of a great tree, a powerful, it was powerful, it was full of fruit, and it says it was visible to the whole world. But then... The tree is cut down, and the word that the scripture uses is cut down by a watcher. I was like, what is a watcher? And it's this idea of an angel or a messenger. So in the dream, he sees this like angel from heaven come down and just cut the tree down. And the angel says, basically, let this man become like the analogy. Let this tree, let this man become like a beast of the field. And we go to chapter 4, verse 17, and it says this. It says, the sentence... This will all make sense in a moment. The sentence is by decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end, that the living may know that the Lord, that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over and sets over it the lowliest of men. Sorry, can't read. Here, here's the point, right? The dream gives a picture of this tree being struck down for a period of time. And Daniel says, hey, it's going to happen. It's going to be struck down. We look at verses 18 through 25. After the king explains the dream, he begs for Daniel to interpret it. And God again revealed the meaning of the dream to Daniel. But Daniel is afraid to tell the king the meaning. He's like, I can't tell you this because it was bad news for the king. It was not a good message for the king. The king says, don't be afraid, Daniel. Tell me this anyway. And so here's the meaning. Daniel says, Nebuchadnezzar, he says, you are the tree. Your kingdom is great. Your, your, your reign is mighty. You are, like, seen by all the world. You're revered by all the world. But he says, King, this, this tree, you, you are going to be cut down and humbled so that God may be known. 
He says he will be cut down and driven to be like a beast for a period of time until he humbles himself. And the second part of verse 25 says this. He says, Till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. There's a promise. Basically, he says, King, you're going to be humbled. Because of your pride, you're going to be cut down. You're going to be humbled. But there's a promise that you are going to be restored. Your kingdom is going to be restored after you recognize how, what it means that you've been humbled and that you'll be restored. And so verses 27 through 32. We're almost done with this part, and it's all going to, I'm going to connect it all together, so hang with me. All right, verse 27, it says, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. He's saying, king, you should repent. You should deal with your sin here, right? Verse 28, all, this came upon, all of this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon? which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. You hear the pride in that, right? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate, and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. This is very descriptive language. This is crazy what's happening to King Nebuchadnezzar. He is humbled to the point where he in a sense, like, loses his mind and goes out and he's just, like, eating grass and he's like a wild animal for a period of time. It says seven periods of time. I don't know exactly how long that is, but there was a period of time where he is out in the field eating grass like an animal. He has lost his mind. Every bit of, like, glory and majesty that he thought he had, he is now the opposite of that. So everything in the dream was fulfilled. The king was taken away from the palace and became like an animal, eating grass and living in the fields. And it comes to the end of the passage, verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. And this was his prayer. It says, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason, at the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Okay, big picture. The king, he is like, hey, look at me. I'm the best. I've built this kingdom. It's for my majesty. He's humbled, and God keeps his promise, and he's restored. But at the end of that restoration, the king, it says he lifts his eyes to heaven. He came to a point where he realized my glory is nothing compared to the greatness of the glory of God. And that last prayer, he's saying, God, you are the king above all kings. And Nebuchadnezzar himself says, I understand now what it means to be humbled. 
and what it means that God is the king above all kings. All right, that was a lot, I know. Are you tracking with me? You guys might need to like move around a little bit, take some deep breaths. Are you awake? Are you with me? Okay, all of this has a point, all right? So here we go. Um, so what do we do with all of this? And this is where we're gonna get, hopefully, to really apply this to our daily lives. Like how do these stories show us how to stand firm in our faith? Because again, our main point is this. We can stand firm in our faith when we understand that God's kingdom will outlast all human kingdoms. So I want to highlight a few things that we, you and I, we need to recognize these things in order to stand firm in our lives. The first one, we need to recognize the devastating result of human pride. Secondly, we need to recognize the necessity of depending on God for wisdom. And finally, we need to recognize the eternal nature of the kingdom of God. So first of all, these stories point us to pride and humility. We need to see the devastating result of human pride. And this is something we've talked about before. It's so important to see in this story. And it's a theme all throughout the Bible, that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We, we just read that a few weeks ago in James chapter 4. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. And obviously, King Nebuchadnezzar's story is pretty extreme, right? But it's a real story, that if a person lives for their own glory and for their own greatness, there will come a time when they are humbled, right? Simple proverb, pride comes before the fall. So often, right, has anybody ever been like, you know, I, I played basketball a lot and things, baseball and basketball, and um, there was this one time, this story is not my notes, so hopefully I tell this right. Uh, but there was, I was playing baseball, and in baseball, you have these little weight things that you can put on the bat, and it's called a donut. You do not eat it, it's made of metal, it's heavy. You slide it on the bat to make the bat heavier when you're like warming up, it's called a donut. Well, I was thinking I was all cool, this is probably like ninth grade, and I'm doing this, and one of my friends was like taking it and like flipping it and trying to catch it, and they probably weigh like three or four pounds, right? I took one and flipped it in the air, and it flew through the air and smacked this other guy in the head. And I got in big trouble. My coach was like, Copeland, get out of here. You know, I was like, whatever, sorry. Right? My, my like, hey, look at me. I'm cool. I'm just like everybody else. And then you get humbled, right? We all know what that feels like. But even in a bigger scheme of things, like even a person that goes through their whole life living for themselves, living out the Frank Sinatra song that says, I did it my way, there will come a time, if we believe all this to be true, they will be humbled when they come face to face with, face with God and see that they have lived for their own glory. So pride comes before the fall. Every person eventually will come to a point of humility at some point in the other. I read a quote this week that says, God hates pride because it challenges his sovereignty and it questions his will and ways. Right? Pride basically says, God, I don't need you. I can do it. I can figure it out. You're not really, you don't really know as much as I do, right? It questions God's sovereignty. It questions his wisdom. Pride will cause us to get obsessed with our own kingdom, our own life, with building it, with protecting it, making sure it's what it needs to be, right? So we have to ask ourselves this morning, because this, again, it's about how do we apply this to our lives? Can you honestly ask yourself, am I living with pride? Am I living with ego? Am I living thinking, I don't need anyone to tell me what to do. I know what to do. I mean, I'm gonna live in such a way that makes sure that I look good all the time. I don't look foolish. Um, my, I wanna make sure that even if I'm following Jesus, it doesn't make me look foolish to anyone. I wanna look good, I wanna be cool. That is pride that creeps into our hearts. Are you building your own kingdom? Are you spending and giving everything in your life 
to say, this is what I want to do. This is how I want to do it. I'm building my own kingdom because I want to be happy. My challenge to myself and to each of us is humble yourself. Humble yourself before God. Acknowledge his greatness and his power and that all you have is because of him and live for his glory rather than your own. This is what we need to learn from Nebuchadnezzar, right? What did he say? He's walking on his rooftop saying, look at what I have done. And God humbles him. And when we go through our life with that mindset of like, hey, I'm good, look at me. No, never, not everybody's as good as me. God will bring humility in our lives. And humility is the way of Jesus, right? Humility is what God loves. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God wants us to be in that position in our lives where we say, I don't know, I don't know everything, but God, you do, and I need you. God is attracted to humility. God is attracted to weakness and brokenness. God is even attracted to us when we are a mess. and We're broken and sinful, but when we come and say, okay, God, I need you, God loves it when we come to him. Pride will lead us to falling flat on our face. And as the title of this series says, we want to know how to stand rather than being humbled and, and falling flat on our face, right? So learn from this story. Because at the deepest levels, pride will cause us to live as if we don't need God. And that's how King Nebuchadnezzar was living. Look at my kingdom. I don't need God. When we look at Daniel, Daniel lived in the complete opposite way. Because what's our second point? Our second point is this. We have to recognize the necessity of depending on God for wisdom. Daniel was totally dependent on God for wisdom. He put himself out there by saying, hey, I can interpret the dream. In chapter 2, he tells the king he can do it before God had revealed the dream. This was his trust and dependence on God. That was how he could stand firm. Because he had a complete and total and almost like if it's just human logic, it doesn't even make sense that he says, God, I depend on you. Doesn't make sense right now, but God, I trust you. This is how we could, he could stand. So what did this look like practically? I think a couple things we see in the story. First of all, we see that Daniel prays. And the point of prayer is full dependence on God. When we pray, we are acknowledging to God that we need him, that we're helpless, but he is able. And if you remember from chapter 2, Daniel didn't just simply pray on his own. In verse 17, he gathered his friends. He gathered people around him and said, guys, we need to pray. We need wisdom, and we need God to show up. And if you remember the story, if God had not revealed it, if God had not shown up, they literally would have been killed. They were, their, their lives were on the line, and they said, we need wisdom. So he gathers people to pray together. Such an important lesson for us. Prayer is important, but it's not just you. It's you and a community of believers, right? We need wisdom. And so uh, there's a quote that's going to be on the screen. It says this. It says, almost everyone believes that prayer is important. Who would say that? I believe prayer is important. Yes, I do, okay? But there is a difference between believing that prayer is important and believing it is essential. Essential means there are things that will not happen without prayer. And that's where Daniel was. Daniel wasn't just like, guys, this is important, we should pray. It was, we have nothing else to do. Our lives are on the line. And prayer then became for them essential of depending on God. See, true prayer is not about just saying some certain words or praying in a certain way or saying, okay, we prayed, so we're good, we said these words. True prayer is an understanding that if God does not move, we are sunk. 
where prayer goes beyond this just like religious activity to this essential part where we say, God, we don't know what to do, but we trust you. So Daniel prays, right? We're looking at practically what this looked like for Daniel to depend on God. Secondly, Daniel worshiped God, and this was kind of connected in with his prayer. In chapter 2, verses 20 through 23, Daniel, as God reveals this, this dream and interpretation, Daniel just turns in response to worship God. He proclaims the greatness and the power of God and that all wisdom and might belong to him and that his kingdom is over all kingdoms because worship is responding to the greatness of God. And worship is a sign of true humility. It's saying, you are God and I'm not. As Daniel depended on God, he was completely recognizing. Dan Daniel didn't say, oh, that's really good. I, I, I think I've got this dream figured out. Wow, I'm pretty smart, right? No, he says, God, wisdom comes from you. All power, all might comes from you. And he, he responds in worship to the greatness of God. And as Daniel prayed, he was not focused on himself or his current problems. He put his focus on God, who is above all of that. So think about this in your own life. What a treasure this is. What a treasure prayer is. That prayer does not have to be a burden or some boring spiritual practice. Prayer is daily dependence on God for wisdom, for direction, for communication with God, for relationship with God. And so I encourage you this morning, embrace prayer in your life. Embrace this communication with God. Embrace this worshipful adoration of God. That he invites us to come to him, and he loves when we come to him. He loves, I already said this a moment ago, he loves it when we're weak. He loves it when we're in need. He loves it when we say, God, I just need you. I long to be near to you. And God says, that's the attitude I'm looking for, humility and neediness. Because the world says, well, you've got to clean yourself up. You've got to look good. You've got to make sure you're good, and then maybe God will accept you. No. God says, come in your brokenness. Come with humility that just says, God, I need you. So start small as we think about prayer. Simply take time each day to pour out your heart to God. It doesn't have to be a specific way, a specific words. It's simply just saying, God, I need you. This is how I feel today. Help me. Right? Those are the, the honest prayers that God loves. Pray with others. When you meet for, with, when, if you're part of a discipleship group, pray with those people. If you're part of a community group, look for ways to connect and pray. If you're going through something, if you're having a rough week or a rough day, send a text to someone and say, hey, please pray with me. Pray for me. Because there's beauty in our own communication with God and there's beauty in a community of people praying together. And Daniel understood that without God, he was sunk. Man, we need this. We need this, this in our own lives. We need this in our church, in our families, in our neighborhoods, to know deep in our souls that we need God. And we don't like that. That's not human nature because we don't like to think that we need anyone. We like to think, I can do it. Right? I'm originally from the States, and this, the idea that just makes up America is pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Right? Take care of yourself. Make your own way. That is not the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is humility. Saying, God, I need you. Daniel understood. He was without God, he was sunk. 
There is a necessity for us to depend on God for wisdom if we want to stand firm in our faith in this world. If we want to stand firm, we must learn to be people that depend on God. So think about it. Do you need to respond to a difficult text or an email or have a difficult conversation? I was reminded of this this week. I got, I got a text from someone um, that, I won't, it doesn't matter the details, but I got it and I was like, oh, I, this, what they had texted me was just not correct. Like it was just like, basically this like belief system, the way they were believing, it was just like, part of me just wanted to say, no, this is not correct. But I just had to stop and pray, God, give me wisdom to know how to answer this text. And, and I, as I, I just gave it a little bit of time and thought, and I responded, and he responded, and it was, there was no problem. I just wanted to respond to it wisely, right? Do you need to respond to something? Ask God for wisdom. Do you have a big life decision coming up? Ask God for wisdom. Do you need boldness to know how to tell a friend about what God is doing in your life? Ask God for wisdom. We are dependent on him, and we see that in Daniel. Daniel knew what it was to be dependent on God. Third and final point, okay? You guys need to stretch and, like, do some jumping jacks or something, right? Um, the third is this. We have to recognize, if we're going to stand firm, we have to recognize the eternal nature of the kingdom of God. So finally, how could Daniel stand firm? It's because he understood the right things about the way kingdoms work, right? The primary point that we're looking at is that we can stand firm in our faith when we understand that God's kingdom will outlast all human kingdoms. So Daniel experienced a life of change and upheaval all around him. When you look at the whole book of Daniel and his whole story, he saw the rise and fall of at least five kings, right? In Israel and then in Babylon. And like Daniel, like the whole book carries on for like 60-ish years. And Daniel's just faithful, every bit of it, while all these kings rise, fall, rise, fall, rise, fall. So Daniel lived in the midst of upheaval. And then on top of that, Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the image or statue points to this and reiterates this. And it points to the rise and the fall of the following kingdoms. And we're going to pick, put a picture up here. And, and my caveat here is this is what this is is a fairly widespread belief of what this dream means and kind of played out, right? Um, remember, this is, in a sense, it's prophecy. It's saying, hey, king, here's what's going to happen in the future. But as people and historians and people who study scripture look back, here's what it seems, that you had the Babylonian, Babylonian Empire as the head of gold, and it fell. And next came the Medo-Persian Empire, and then it fell. And then the, the Grecian Empire under Alexander the Great, and it, for a period of time, rose to the, to the scene. And then it fell. And then the Roman Empire, and then as that split into the east and west and became the Holy Roman Empire, it seems as the dream points to these things, right? But all of that just illustrates that Daniel understood and this dream reiterated that the kingdoms of man rise and fall. Because I guarantee you that none of those kingdoms at the height of their power thought we're going to crumble and fall. They thought we're it. We're here. We're here to stay. And yet the kingdom of God outlasts all kingdoms. Right? But what was the point of the dream? Right? Because in the dream, we've got this idea, this image. Like that's someone's artist's depiction. I don't know if that's exactly what it looked like. But what was the point of the dream? The point was that all of these kingdoms would come and go. But the kingdom of God will stand forever. In both dreams, the statue and the tree, we see that something comes to destroy them and cut them down. When you look at that, 
We see the big picture of Scripture. What is that? That thing, that person, that someone is Jesus. And that something is the kingdom of God. And Daniel understood this and it allowed him to stand firm, knowing that no king, no kingdom is bigger than God. Daniel stood firm knowing that God's kingdom is eternal. So how does that impact us? What are the daily life implications? We have to ask ourselves, what kingdom are we living for? Are we building our own kingdom? Are we focused on our own thing? The world is just like right around us right now. Are we realizing that it's not going to last forever? Literally, our, even our own lives are not going to last forever. And all the things that we can put our trust in are going to crumble and fall. Because we can get so caught up in literally like, hey, this is what's hot right now. Like we literally live in a world that things are trends. Like if you're a Twitter user, things literally are called trends and they last about three hours and then it's gone, right? That is the kind of world that we live in, that things rise and fall so rapidly. When we do that, when we live by, hey, here's what's cool right now, here's what's hot right now, here's what's right in front of me, here's what's shiny and cool right now, we miss the bigger picture of the eternal, enduring God. If you are living that way, you're putting, all of us, we are putting our hope somewhere. And you are building your life on something. You must put your hope in the right kingdom because the only kingdom that will not fall or fail is the kingdom of God. We have, to have, we have to have an understanding. So that's the first thing. We're building the right kingdom. Secondly, we have to have an understanding that this world is not our home, which we said at the beginning. Because in a spiritual sense, we as Christians are living as exiles, awaiting the day when we go to our true home as citizens of the kingdom of God. So you are living your life. You see the news. Something bad happens in the world. Something in our world has crumbled and fallen. You see the brokenness in the world, or more personally, you see a relationship in your life kind of fall apart, or you lose your job, or any other number of things that we face. And it's no surprise, we all know this, that things come and go, and we see these ups and downs. When things like this come, where is your hope? Is your hope in this earthly kingdom that's right around us, that's crumble, that crumbles and falls? Or is your hope in the kingdom of God that lasts forever? Because understanding the eternal nature of God's kingdom will lead us to do things that matter for eternity. It will lead us to invest not just in temporary stuff, but in things that are eternal, which are people and relationship with God. It will teach us to live for the things that truly matter. And when we understand the eternal nature of the kingdom of Jesus, we can live with him as our foundation rather than the shakiness of the world around us. We can stand firm on Jesus when everything around us shakes and moves. So Daniel is showing us how we can stand firm in our faith, even when surrounded by those who don't care. We can stand firm in our faith when we understand that God's kingdom will outlast all human kingdoms. And so we trust him and we depend on him for each day. And as I wrap up this morning, I know this is, there was a long and I feel like I'm just talking and talking and talking. That's okay. Because we need to let this scripture sink in and challenge our hearts that we understand and think about kingdoms in the right way because it does have implications for everyday life. You can stand firm in your faith. And I know there are days, there are weeks, there are seasons of time 
where it feels like everything is shaking and everything is falling apart and nothing is secure. I want you to know in the midst of that today that there is hope. Jesus is our rock. Jesus is our cornerstone. Jesus is the stone not cut by human hands that we see in Daniel chapter 2. His kingdom will endure forever. In him, we find hope beyond this world. In Isaiah chapter 9, there's a prophecy that we all often read at Christmas time, but it says this in verses 6 and 7. It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And this is a prophecy of Jesus, the coming Messiah, whose kingdom will endure for all time. That the government will rest upon his shoulders. That he is the place we put our hope. That his kingdom is eternal. That Jesus is the cornerstone. He is the king of kings. His kingdom endures. And when we think about this in, 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 in the context of the gospel and what it means that there is good news, it means this, that you and I can build our life upon Jesus. And there is a, the reality is that we are broken and sinful, and our sin separates us from God. But in the middle of our sin, what did God do? God sent his son, Jesus to establish a kingdom that would endure forever. God sent his son Jesus, born of a virgin, who lived a sinless and perfect life so that anyone who puts their faith in Jesus can have their sin and guilt removed. Because Jesus, even though he didn't deserve it, gave his life on the cross. He died, and yet his kingdom did not end because he rose again, conquering death. Jesus is our way back to God. And anyone who puts their faith in him, whether for the first time or day after day after day, saying, Jesus, my faith is in you. My foundation is in you. My cornerstone is in you. It's when we live that way with our faith in Jesus rather than in ourselves that we find that eternal hope in Jesus. We can stand firm in our faith when we understand that God's kingdom will outlast all human kingdoms. Let's pray together this morning. God, we're so thankful that you are a gracious God. And I thank you for your word and how it illuminates so many things. And Lord, this morning, would you challenge our hearts? God, I pray that we would be honest to search our hearts, to know, are we living in pride? Are we living in arrogance? Or are we humbling ourselves before you? So God, as we worship, as we respond, we'll let our eyes be fixed on you this morning. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon from Renaissance Church. If you have any questions about the sermon or would like to know more, please feel free to contact us by email at renaissance.mtl.gmail.com or reach out to us on social media. It's our passion to love Jesus, love each other, and love our world.